turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show. And in my best, George Papard from A-Team Hannibal. I love it when a plan comes together, and the plan for the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, confirmation, and swearing in came together just as advertised earlier this month upon the announcement of her nomination. Amy Coney Barrett confirmed uh, yesterday by the Senate with uh, one Republican, Susan Collins, deciding to throw her Senate seat away and uh, join with the Democrats. And uh, she was sworn in by Clarence Thomas, and that was a moment. I, Amy Coney Barrett, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. I believe her, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett added some texturing to that. My fellow Americans, even though we judges don't face elections, we still work for you. It is your Constitution that establishes the rule of law and the judicial independence that is so central to it. The oath that I have solemnly taken tonight means at its core that I will do my job without any fear or favor and that I will do so independently of both the political branches and of my own preferences. And uh, I go back to something that uh, my friend Mary Helen Fiorita from the uh, public uh, policy, the Ethics and Public Policy Center said about uh, her nomination at the time of her nomination that um, just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a symbol to women that this is possible, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg accomplished in her legal career, so does Amy Coney Barrett symbolize to women in this country what is possible in the sense that you can be a mom, you can be a successful lawyer, law professor, appellate court judge, Supreme Court justice, and a faithful Catholic Christian, and a faithful Catholic Christian. She's a symbol for religious liberty, her confirmation is, I would suggest. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Father Daniel Maria Klimek. He is an assistant professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, author of Medjugorje and the Supernatural, Science, Mysticism, and Extraordinary Religious Experiences. Father Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. You uh, wrote uh, The Spectator recently about uh, Amy Coney Barrett's um, pending confirmation, and um, you talked about it being a long time in coming. What did you mean? Yeah, well, I was fascinated by something that Senator Lindsey Graham said. He spoke very poignantly. He said that we are watching history, that this is history being made because we have, for the first time, an unashamedly pro-life, devout Catholic woman who makes no apology for her faith, and she is being offered a place at the table at the U.S. Supreme Court. And those were his words, and it's a long time coming. Because what our Senator Graham meant is that 
according to him, it has been difficult for women and for persons of color who have conservative values to get ahead, especially in the Washington establishment, that there's been a certain establishment bias against them because of their viewpoints, particularly on the provocative issues uh, like abortion, the life issues. And so the fact that we have a Supreme Court justice now who, who was nominated, you know, knowingly that she was uh, pro-life, she signed a petition um, in South Bend where um, she supported the dignity of human life from conception to natural death. The petition also referred to the, quote, barbaric legacy of Roe v. Wade. So there was no question as to what her viewpoints are. And historically, in the past, a person who's nominated to the Supreme Court, they need to seemingly hide those viewpoints as if there's some type of shame in being pro-life, some type of stigma or taboo that should disqualify a person from being a justice. So the fact that we have seen this so openly during this confirmation hearing, and she, of course, showed her intellectual prowess, her brilliant legal mind, her ability to become a justice on the Supreme Court really impressed a lot of people. In that sense, we are seeing something absolutely significant. Yeah, and uh, that that uh, that other piece that you just mentioned about her legal mind and her intellectual heft, this is one of the things that uh, those who disagree with her on an issue like the life issue attempt to do to people of faith. They're people of faith and only people of faith. They're cardboard cutouts. All uh, Amy Coney Barrett is is the dogma that lives loudly within her rather than somebody who is a faithful Catholic but also recognizes her professional responsibilities in a secular post as a Supreme Court justice and will go where the Constitution demands that she goes in terms of interpreting and uh, adjudicating cases that are before her. This is very much, to me, reminiscent of how people of faith are treated in the scientific community. If you believe in God, then you can't believe in science. And it's funny, I was just thinking about this this weekend. I was attending a Mass at my home parish in Chicago, St. John Cantius, and St. John, sure. John Cantius, of course, you know, but a lot of people don't. St. John Cantius was an academician. He was a physics professor who actually taught Copernicus. But um, <laughs> we're, we're supposed to believe that, again, faithful Catholics can also be intellects in a secular setting with secular responsibilities, can also be men and women of science, too. Right, right, absolutely. And that's such a great point, because if you actually look up some of the most prominent scientists who have lived, a number of them have actually been Jesuit priests, you know, a number of them have been men of faith. And it's interesting with Amy Coney Barrett, because while as a Catholic priest, I, I am so proud of having you know, what I perceive as a spiritual daughter of mine, a, a, a you know, fellow devout Catholic on the Supreme Court. Uh, what also impresses us and makes us excited about her confirmation is the fact that she's an originalist in terms of a judicial philosophy, because obviously you do have um, other Catholics on the courts. They do not all have a an originalist original judicial philosophy, and therefore they may not rule in a way that respects the U.S. Constitution, but they may rule in a way that is more reflective of a judicial activism, perhaps a political agenda. Because, you know, interestingly, it, it always is the big controversy, Roe v. Wade. You know, is it going to be overturned? Is this Catholic going to do it? And of course, that is, as you were saying, the prejudice. You know, a very devout Catholic woman, that is a threat to, to 
a lot to a lot of people in the DC establishment, in the secular establishment. But what's interesting is when you have a case like Roe v. Wade, that's actually a case that many liberal legal scholars who consider themselves pro-choice have said there is no strong legal foundation for it because basically what the justices did who were part of the majority opinion on roe v wade was they created a privacy right um out of the 14th amendment and you know even people like justice scalia you know, when he criticized Roe v. Wade, the criticism isn't based on his Catholic faith. The criticism is based on his judicial philosophy as an originalist, somebody who interprets the Constitution as it was written. Yes, so when, when, it, was, yeah. it's a, it was a criticism of Justice Blackmun's penumbras, which were just invented out of whole cloth. And and you're, you're right to say exactly that. And I mean, the other thing about Amy Coney Barrett, too, is I sort of said at the outset, it's I mean, as important as Roe v. Wade is, uh, this is also about religious liberty. This is somebody uh, this is a bulwark against the encroachments on people's First Amendment right to conscience. And this is important to have on the high court, somebody who respects all of the freedoms that are delineated in the First Amendment. Yes, absolutely. And and that's such a great point, especially in regard to how the Democratic senators try to portray her. They try to give this narrative that she is a woman who will t- take away health care from every man, woman and child in America, trying to portray her as this extreme right wing French figure. And, and they, they do it on the basis of criticisms that she had of, of the Affordable Care Act. But when you actually look at her criticisms, her criticisms are based on what you just um, articulated. You know, she criticized the way that the Affordable Care Act basically forced religious employers to include um, coverage for birth control in their insurance. So how it's a complete violation of religious liberty, especially for Catholic employers. So when you actually look at her decisions and her opinions, you see a fighter for religious liberty. And of course, that fight comes uh, from a woman who loves the U.S. Constitution, and she understands that the Constitution protects uh, religious liberty. Instead of seeing this narrative of the horrible person who's going to take away health care, you see a nuance there where she's actually fighting for Americans and their rights. He is Father Daniel Maria Klimek, Assistant Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, author of Medjugorje and the Supernatural Science, Mysticism, and Extraordinary Religious Experiences. Father Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm uh, digging these uh, montages that President Trump is using in the closing rallies for this campaign season. Several ones, actually, that I saw in Waukesha, Wisconsin over the weekend. 
He added one in Pennsylvania yesterday, Joe Biden on China and trade deals. Also, again, given the unrest and the violence in San Bernardino and Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, after police-involved shootings, this should be uh, included in the campaign rallies to come. Remember this exchange between Addie Barkin, who's a uh, leftist activist, and uh, Joe Biden. Now, Addie Barkin has ALS. That's why his voice is modulated. But this was the exchange, if you remember. Instead of sending two police officers with deadly weapons to that Wendy's drive through in Atlanta, we could have sent a wellness counselor and a tow truck, and then Ray's Hard Brooks would still be alive today, and his three daughters would still have their daddy. Are you open to that kind of reform? Yes, I propose that kind of reform. We need significantly more help. That's why I call for significant increase in funding for mental health clinics and mental health providers. We are desperately in need of that now. One of the things I've been pushing for in our administration, we put together the ability and a bill that I wrote to make sure that we can look at pattern and practice of police departments, go in and get all the records and find out what they're doing. Uh huh. So the question was, instead of police responding in the Russia Brooks case, send social workers or mental health professionals. And Joe Biden said yes. And this is the same Joe Biden that when he's on a debate stage says, no, I'm not for defunding police or I'm not for reimagining police, which is the euphemism for defunding police. And of course, the press court just grabs onto that, says, look, I asked him the question. He said, no, that's the end of the discussion. It doesn't matter what he said five minutes ago. And that's the same on China. That's the same on trade deals. That's the same on fracking and energy policy. It's a joke. And by the way, it's not just uh, conservatives like me saying it. It's also Matt Taibbi who uh, makes statements against interests. His columns over the last couple of months have all been statements against interests. He is a man of the left. But he writes about the Hunter Biden story in the context of assessing the media. The flow of information in the United States has become so politicized, bottlenecked by an increasingly brazen union of corporate press and tech platforms, that it's become impossible for American audiences to see news about certain topics absent thickets of propagandistic contextualizing. And he uses the Hunter Biden as an example. He uh, Googled Biden, Ukraine, billion aid. And all you get is fact check what really happened and uh, the White House perspective and so on and so forth. He makes the point. Other true information has been scrubbed or deranked either by platforms or by a confederation of press outlets whose loyalty to the Democratic Party far now overshadows its obligations to inform. And he goes on to say as to where things stand with this story a week out. And by the way, Tony Babinski scheduled for a long form interview with Tucker Carlson on his show tonight. Taibbi writes, editors have been telling charges that any effort to determine whether or not the Biden laptop material is true or to ask the Biden campaign to confirm or deny the story will either not be allowed or put through heightened fact checking procedures. On the other hand, if you want to assert without any evidence at all that the New York Post story is Russian interference, you can essentially go straight to print. For more on all of this, plus the closing argument, we're pleased to be joined again by Hogan Gidley. He's the National Press Secretary for the Trump campaign. Hogan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. So um, let's talk about the Hunter Biden story with uh, the Bobulinski interview tonight and with you know continued stories by Peter Schweitzer at The Post, as well as the other reporters who've been on this story. And uh, the ability to get this out and present it in such a way that people get the gist of it before Tuesday to inform their vote. Yes, uh, maybe 40 percent of people will have voted early, but that means 60 percent will have not. Yeah, look, I just think anytime you can shed light on what had occurred that was so egregious against this president is important, whether that be spying on his campaign, 
whether that be the Russia collusion hoax, and the fact that the media ran with that without evidence or without corroboration for three years and now are clutching their pearls on this other issue as it relates to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. And, and I want to be clear, this isn't about Hunter. It's about Joe. What did Joe know and when did he know it? And the fact is, he said many times he had no idea about Hunter Biden's business dealings. And now we have someone going on the record, putting their face to this, not in print, but on, on camera, saying Joe Biden was part of this. He discussed these things. He had to uh, give advice on these things and he even signed off on some of these things. That's a serious allegation. It's a serious problem for the Joe Biden campaign. At the very least, it proves Joe Biden's been lying that he didn't have any knowledge of Hunter Biden's business dealings. And that, to me, goes right to the core of what Joe Biden's been trying to sell to the American people, which at this point, I just don't see them buying it. I, got, I just watched uh, the, the uh, film, The Plot Against the President, that was um, directed by Amanda Milius, who is the uh, daughter of the great uh, Hollywood screenwriter John Milius, Apocalypse Now, Red Dawn. Uh, I think he directed Red Dawn, actually, not the screenwriter there. But um, I got to tell you, I mean, I know this stuff because I follow it every day for the last 10 years. But the the details provided by those who spoke on the record, like Devin Nunez and Jim Jordan, about what happened during that three years of the Russian collusion hoax, the investigations and the subterfuge and arguably the uh, various uh, attempted coups, it, it is just so stunning I can understand when President Trump wants to talk about it, and I can understand why he is so indignant and offended by it. He's offended on behalf of the American people of what their government uh, was capable of trying to do to undermine the legitimacy of our government. Uh, and, and I just wonder, I, I know, it, you know when he talks about it, it comes across like, oh, he's, he's crying about his treatment, and so he doesn't want to be there in the, with the closing argument, which needs to be about the future, not the past. Totally understand that and agree with that. But, boy, in a second term, there really needs to be a reckoning in FBI, in CIA, in the upper reaches of the intelligence apparatus in the federal government that just hasn't been visited upon individuals who need to feel that reckoning yet. Don't you don't you think? Look, I think the president has drained the swamp. No question about that. But but there are still a few things lurking around down there in that in that, that wet mud. And, and uh, you know, they don't want to give up that power. And it's been pretty obvious for a long time that there are people all throughout this government. I mean, federal government has millions and millions of employees um, that, that are, are hell bent on trying to, you know, stifle this president, this duly elected president's agenda. There are people there who have gone after this president. I mean, but just think about you. You just hit on something I think is important. Had he not been elected, we'd never know the names of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. We wouldn't know about Brennan and Clapper and Comey and all their cabal. We wouldn't know that. Now we do. He's got to get reelected, as you just said, for that purpose. There's still a lot of work to be done inside the federal government to root out a lot of this corruption and a lot of this behavior. And Donald Trump can do it. Um, we've seen him already start to kind of peel away at this onion. And and, and even though it, it continues to stink and even though everyone's eyes are watering, he keeps going because he wants to make sure the American people have the power, not these folks in these in these back rooms and in these uh, you know cigar filled lounges trying to cut deals and make decisions on behalf of the American people when they don't have to abide by the very rules they themselves are advocating for or passing into law. When we come back with Hogan Gidley, National Press Secretary for the Trump campaign, 
I want to ask him about another sump pump that's still working to drain the swamp. We'll be right back. Show.com. We're back with Hogan Gidley, National Press Secretary for the Trump campaign, before the break discussing the uh, corruption of the swamp. And I wanted to get to a particular sump pump that's still working, and we wanted to complete its job and have the results. Uh, broadcast to the American people. That's the Durham investigation. And what happens if Trump doesn't win reelection as to that effort? No, a hundred percent. What's the, what's the motivation? Who's out there saying in the press, who's out there uh, claiming we need to get it done. If not the president of the United States, otherwise they'll just go back to, to doing what they do and, and building their little fiefdoms and, and, you know, shortchanging the American people in the process. And that's unacceptable. And that's one of the reasons the president really did, um, you know, go all in and trying to make sure that that what was what was hidden by the darkness was exposed by the light. And the American people are better off for it because we now know if the FBI can weaponize an entire branch, even though it's just a few bad actors at the top, if they can weaponize an entire branch to attack, um, you know, a candidate for president, then a president of the United States, just think what they can do to you if somehow you get crossways with somebody. So, I think he's done a lot to further uh, democracy. I think he's done a lot to further transparency. And and Democrats are always um, accusing Republicans of something they themselves are guilty of actually doing. So first it was, you know, you guys are colluding with Russia, but it's actually the Democrats who had the Russian dossier. You guys want to move the election date, but it's you guys who um, are suing in 15 states to allow votes to come in after election day. Um, you guys won't concede the election when it's Hillary Clinton telling Joe Biden, wait a minute, don't you dare concede on Election Day. Don't do it. It's it's the Democrats saying you guys are inciting violence when it's Eric Holder saying when 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 they go low, we kick them. It's Kamala Harris saying these things are going to keep happening all across the country, these riots and this looting. It's it's Maxine Waters saying you get in their faces. You don't let them eat. You make a disruption. You cause a scene. So it's time and time again this happens, and this is a great example. They think or they try to claim that we're the ones orchestrating these things from the government when it's actually Democrats who have this entire system rigged in the favor of the elite and of the powerful. That's why the president continues to run as an outsider, because he's not part of this. He's, he's part of America, and, and I think that's very telling. I, I wonder, too, you, you know, you've got so many uh, binary choices, right? Law and order versus the lawlessness. You lockdowns versus uh, sensible reopening of schools and businesses and learning to live with the virus, as uh, President Trump said in the debate on Thursday night, which is the the only r- real choice, the only choice that exists in the real world, not the the utopia that uh, Joe Biden and, and the uh, Democrat socialists are painting. How do you tie it all up? I mean, it seems to me, you know, you you just mentioned they are who they say Trump and Republicans are. 
And so for all their talk about uh, trumping the bully, this is a party that wants to bully you in every single aspect of your life, starting whether with whether or not you can even walk outside your front door. And then it just ramps up from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're hearing these folks saying we can't reopen the country. Joe Biden's saying we have to lock it back down again. Look, I know the health ramifications. We now know what we're dealing with a lot better now than we did in January of coronavirus is, is, a, is an example. It's tragic. It's, it's gut-wrenching what's happened in this country. But in addition to the medical issues uh, that occur from the virus, death and other things, I mean, the economic issues and the lasting impact of that is, is, is crippling to a nation that predicates itself upon being free and open and, and, and you know, capitalistic in its very, very nature. People have saved up their whole life's uh, their whole life's work to open up a business. It's gone. People have have sold everything they had just to try and make ends meet in this time because jobs aren't there like they used to be. Now we're on a V-shaped econ- econ- economy uh, recovery here because the president has has brought in more jobs, 11 plus million in the last four months than we've ever seen in a four month period in the history of our country. But Joe Biden is literally telling the American people. He's going to shut it back down. We have to find a way to live with this. And I know that, that it's, it's tough, and I know that we have to continue the masks and the social distancing and all those things, but you can't shut down the country again. Even the health experts, Fauci and Burks and Hahn, Redfield, they're all saying you probably shouldn't shut down the country again. The, the health ramifications of just anxiety, depression, suicides, what it's doing to our children, many of whom in the lower income, a bracket are hurt exorbitantly worse because they're not getting an education. They're not getting three square meals a day. And, and also abuse uh, is, is uh, physical and mental abuse going up rampantly in those in those communities, too. So those are the types of things you have to talk about. Uh, Hogan Gidley, National Press Secretary for the Trump campaign. Uh, Hogan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And yeah, yesterday, President Trump uh, in uh, town in Pennsylvania put on the map in part by Billy Joel, not just by Billy Joel. And uh, before he uh, spoke to rally goers, President Trump uh, had an impromptu press avail, asked about uh, COVID-19, of course, and uh, whether or not uh, Joe Biden's characterization of his uh, management of that pandemic is correct. No, no, he has. He's waved a white flag on life. He doesn't leave his basement. Zing. Uh, have you Joe Biden says you waved the white flag on fighting coronavirus. You heard the president's uh, retort. Exactly. It uh, would have been uh, useful at the final debate on Thursday night, last Thursday night as well, when Joe Biden said, that, you know, the most ridiculous canned line. I'm not going to lock down the economy. Or I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm going to shut down the virus. What does that mean? How are you going to shut down the virus? It's just so ridiculous. 
Next hour, we'll uh, talk to Dr. Roger Klein about uh, shutting down the virus, as we talked about with Jeffrey Tucker yesterday, going from flatten to slow to stop. Is stop possible? And the answer, I'll take some of the suspense out. The answer is no. The contagious virus, I just shut it down the way that he stood on the eastern seaboard and said, Ebola, you shall not pass when he was vice president during the Obama years. It's just so childish and ridiculous and a poll tested pablum. It needs to be deconstructed. But uh, while in Allentown, Trump unveiled yet a, another closing campaign montage, as we were discussing before the break with uh, Hogan Gidley, where he uh, zeroed in on, uh, yes, this the added this one, the, the fracking one we've discussed. He is in Pennsylvania. But um, this on uh, China policy with respect to uh, China policy as with respect to trade, as well as uh, trade deals more generally, including NAFTA versus the uh, USMCA, the renegotiated Mexico-Canada free trade agreement. China's not a problem. Allowing China into the World Trade Organization, which he supported, extending most favored nation status to China, which he supported, that those steps allowed China to take advantage of the United States by using our own open trade deals against us. No, Do you think in retrospect that you were naive about China? No. Today we're finally ending the NAFTA nightmare and signing into law the brand new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Very special. Listen, it's hard to overstate the importance of the USMCA. Uh, this is the single biggest bipartisan legislative victory for this president and this administration. It is a huge deal. Wage growth is better than it has been since 2009. That means it is better than it has been for seven out of eight of the years that Obama was president. The new USMCA has powerful protections to keep auto manufacturing jobs. Since the election, we've created 41,000 brand new motor vehicle and parts jobs. But doesn't he deserve some credit for that? It's better. The USMCA is better than NAFTA. It is better than NAFTA. <laughs> Joe Biden agreeing that it's better than NAFTA. Still uh, a wildly imperfect trade deal. It really doesn't uh, rise to the level of being accurately described as free. But, you know, I digress. Uh, the point is that uh, from the perspective of uh, Joe Biden, USMCA was an improvement for American workers and American manufacturers vis-a-vis the NAFTA deal that he was otherwise supportive of. Trump uh, provided additional commentary that sort of summed this up nicely. The the market position he's reestablishing in the closing days. Isn't that better than me telling you he said this and he said that? There it is. He also said, by the way, he's going to cut your Social Security. You saw that yesterday, right? In 2016, Pennsylvania voted to fire this corrupt political establishment. And you elected an outsider as your president who is finally putting America first. America first. And uh, speaking of America first, boy, the uh, obsession uh, over the last uh, 48 hours on the cable news, at least that I've seen, with uh, trying to convince people that uh, Biden is uh, still uh, leading comfortably both nationally and in the battleground states, uh, CNN Chiron today about how uh, Biden is up in Texas. Uh, okay, sure. Uh, it, it, see, it, it feels uh, put upon. It feels like the press corps is trying to convince themselves that they can drag Joe Biden across the finish line, which is precisely what they're attempting to do. And frankly, what needs to happen if he is going to get across that finish line at all, uh, much less in first place. 
But there's something else, too, for consideration. And maybe some people are beginning to internalize just what's at stake in this election. This piece by Andrew Mickton, the Wall Street Journal, does a nice job of describing it. What you're seeing on the streets of Philadelphia over the last uh, 12 hours, uh, 12 to 24 hours also, uh, is um, a leading indicator. Andrew Micht is the dean of the College of International and Security Studies at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies in Germany. He writes about the American experiment being on life support. Acts of violence encapsulate five decades of neo-Marxist indoctrination in American schools, colleges, and universities. The left's long march through the institutions is all but complete. Extreme intolerance has now replaced the liberal notion, small l, of negotiated compromise that is the sine qua non of democracy. America's young, especially those raised in middle class or affluent homes, have been so brainwashed. They no longer notice how absurd it is to call for the eradication of their own nation state and do so in the lingo of Iran's mullahs. Few seem to be able to grasp the complex, often painful, but on balance, grand story of America, one that is an example of what a people committed to individual freedom can achieve. And he talks about the elites, especially the professorate, bearing much of the responsibility for the state of affairs. Uh, again, the line about uh, the elites in all of these sectors. I know them all, and they're even worse than you think. And I'm standing against them on your behalf, standing against the people that have hurt you, that have diminished your quality of life and fighting on your behalf. I mean, and, and the larger point about America, as part of President Trump's close, goes back to what Tom Klingenstein from the Claremont Institute articulated in his speech that we discussed a couple of weeks back, which is basically, look, this is about somebody, me, President Trump, who believes that America is essentially good and getting better and striving to be better, importantly. And uh, Joe Biden, who's beholden to a movement that thinks America is irreparably bad and must be reinvented from the ground up. That's a choice. November 3rd, next Tuesday. This is Dan Proft. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. I wanted to close the hour out by uh, going back to Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and its uh, saliency, not just for the cases to be adjudicated next term, uh, as uh, that are already on the docket, but also because of. Cases that uh, have been arising could arise, obviously, in the next week, including a post-election, depending on how close it is and if there are any irregularities that are legitimate areas for litigation. On uh, Monday, the uh, Supreme Court declined to allow pandemic-related changes to voting rules in Wisconsin. There was an effort by Democrats to uh, allow individual votes to be counted after Election Day, and that ran afoul of Wisconsin state law. By a 5-3 vote, the court turned away requests by Democrats to uh, enforce a U.S. District Court judge's order from last month that concluded some rules must be altered to protect the right to vote during the COVID crisis. Roberts, who in this case, unlike the Pennsylvania case last week, sided with the 
majority of conservatives over the leftist dissenters distinguished the two cases, while the Pennsylvania applications implicated the authority of state courts to apply their own constitutions to election regulations. This case involves a federal intrusion, U.S. District Court judge in the Wisconsin case, a federal intrusion on state lawmaking processes. Different bodies of law, different precedents govern these two situations and require in these particular circumstances that we allow the modification of election rules in Pennsylvania, but not Wisconsin. And this is a hat tip to the notion of elections being largely state and local matters, and so state and local matters to be adjudicated as well, except to the extent that any state law would run afoul of federal law and federal constitutional protections. So anyway, the importance of Amy Coney Barrett getting to work today and being prepared for these sorts of cases to continue to bubble up to the Supreme Court, both pre-election and perhaps post, we'll see. Something else, too, James Toronto makes the point for those who are skeptical of an Amy Coney Barrett, because we've been down this road before. John Roberts, Chief Justice, as so decreed by George W. Bush 15 years ago against perhaps the um, the better thought of elevating Clarence Thomas to be Supreme Court Justice. Boy, how different the court would be today. But the idea that uh, Amy Coney Barrett could uh, disappoint as well, possible. Sure, of course it is. But one thing is worth noting in sort of this 5-4, I should say, sometimes 6-3, sometimes 5-4 with Roberts sort of all over the place. Uh, Toronto makes the point what does Chief Justice Roberts do when the associate justices split 5-3 along familiar lines? If he joins the liberals and makes it 5-4, Justice Thomas gets to assign the majority opinion and perhaps induce the court to a bolder conclusion. If the Chief Justice joins the majority, he makes the assignment. The resulting 6-3 decision will likely be less sweeping, but it won't be liberal. Those who hoped for a conservative Chief Justice 15 years ago may finally get one. Right? Maybe not uh, by title, but in practice with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett. A key uh, insight from Toronto wanted to make sure I shared it to encourage you about the importance. But it also reminds us of the importance of President Trump's reelection because it is that tenuous one justice. And four years that will transpire the next term of the next president, you could see another one or two justices, perhaps more. Who knows that to retire or or pass away and appointments of replacements need to be appointed. So this is not a rest on your laurels moment. This is a opportunity moment to reshape the court's jurisprudence going forward. But, uh, you know, that uh, can be upended by circumstance, starting with the choice that Americans make on November 3rd. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Bill McGurn writing in the Wall Street Journal, Saving Private Biden. It turned out that biased press coverage wasn't enough to keep Mr. Trump from winning. So for 2020, the press introduced a new corollary to their dispensing with anything resembling objectivity. The new corollary, Joe Biden must never be asked a tough question. And so he hasn't been. And even when he's not asked a tough question, a struggle. So then he must be allowed to flee the press without any reporting on his flight. For example, yesterday, trying to remember whether or not Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation vote was yesterday. Here's the deal. One of the things that that, that is important is that um, keep in mind, although they're going to vote on uh, uh, Barrett, I think today. Okay, we're going to have to leave now. Uh, we're going to have to leave right this way. I'm sorry, you can't follow the vice president. Uh-huh, so on and so forth, right. 
McGurn concluding his piece. The best summary of the new standard in election coverage was given by Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations, our friend. After a particular fawning news conference, he relayed the assessment to a friend. Watching the press handle Joe Biden is like watching someone make sure a three-year-old wins Candyland. That is pretty good, and it's um, uh, not inaccurate. In addition to that, uh, President Trump is on full offense <laughs> against the press in the closing days, as he's been for the last, and necessarily so, for the last uh, three and a half years. And I, I just go back something I mentioned yesterday, but I'll mention it again because I enjoy it so much. The Wi-Fi password at the Waukesha, Wisconsin Trump rally that I attended over the weekend. The Wi-Fi password for the press. Who built the cages, Joe? Question mark. Uh, that is the kind of skewering of people who so richly deserves to be skewered that I enjoy. Our next guest um, points out another uh, skewering job that Trump did, and that was with respect to 60 Minutes. He is Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH 770 AM and 94.5 FM in Seattle-Tacoma. Jason, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, 60 Minutes didn't like the Leslie Stahl interview, so no problem. I'll release the interview on the day of the debate, let it get buried, and take all the steam out of it uh, come the weekend. Yeah, it was kind of interesting the way that it was being set up from the beginning. The way that it was framed kind of made it clear that they were going to do what President Trump had suspected, that it was going to be a hit job. The day that they started to promote it, they used a carefully, selectively edited clip from the first question of a 45-minute interview. Right. And they said, after asking this simple question about what the president's priorities were, he cut his interview short and walked out. And then, of course, they popped themselves up. We, we have a history of 60 minutes of asking tough questions of presidential candidates, which you didn't really get from the interview with Joe Biden. But it wasn't tough questions. It was a misleading, out-of-context edit that took out all of the very specific details behind the president's answer to why he is praising his pre-COVID economy. I think by doing this, by putting it out there in its full glory, number one, it shows you how much these types of shows rely on very, very heavy edits. But number two, it shows you the bias. And it ended up, I believe, forcing 60 Minutes a little bit to do a better job in how they would edit and present this particular interview. Well, the other thing, too, and to your point about how it was teased was, and and you were sort of uh, implicating this point, he was asked one tough question right out of the gate, and he just you know threw up his hands and stormed out. No, he was there for 45 minutes going back and forth with Leslie Stahl across the full range of issues like he did on a debate stage on Thursday night. And then he had just about had enough, but, but there was so much redundancy to it. I could see why he would have had enough at that point, but it's just remarkable. He's running away from the tough questions while they're not covering his opponent who's in his basement. I just love the juxtaposition. And what I think is important to understand, again, thanks to the president putting out this video, I think it ended up forcing the hands of 60 Minutes. They ended up including at the end, the producer stopped the interview. And then Trump took advantage of that and said, okay, I I think we're done here. We spent all this time here and then he left. So this idea that he stormed out, no, he would have probably continued to go had the producer not jumped in. Since we've uh, talked to you before on this show about uh, the... um violence and the rioting and the autonomous zones and all of the lunacy in Portland and Seattle, that you're up that way. I just wanted to get a stop, look and listen, because law and order is still on the ballot. And we've seen this play out uh, last night in West Philadelphia with the rioting and the 30 some cops that were injured in response to a police involved shooting there. So, you know, your take generally on the topic, but also specifically uh, where we stand in Seattle and Portland. Last night was a reminder of the serious issues facing this country in Democrat run cities. For the most part, we haven't been seeing this level of violence over the last few weeks, and that presumably 
really help Joe Biden. But coming in just a few days before an election, President Trump, who I imagine will be spending the next few days at his rallies talking about this. Seattle, generally speaking, we haven't seen as much of the violence that we've seen in the past, although they're still out there marching every single night. Over the weekend, they went to a neighboring city of Bellevue where police were able to look at the intelligence and realize they were planning a riot. And when you allow police officers to do their jobs and actually police, they actually have uh, some really good results. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it's interesting because you have this uh, other uh, police involved shooting just a couple of days earlier in San Bernardino. And this didn't get much as much attention because it's just such a clear cut case. Uh, this was an officer involved in a f- in a fight, really trying to subdue a suspect outside a liquor store. The uh, suspect, big guy, throws off the officer as they're wrestling on the ground, and he reaches into his waistband, pulls out a gun, and then the officer shoots and kills him. Um, but it nonetheless produced rioting and uh, uh, vandalism, criminal damage to property in San Bernardino. So it sort of speaks to this idea that, uh, look, they, they just need a reason they're, they're, and it doesn't need to be a good one. And uh, and it, it also sort of demands, uh, particularly in Pennsylvania, but generally speaking, because this issue obviously transcends Pennsylvania, that in, in terms of some of his closing montages, President Trump might want to reintroduce Joe Biden telling the country that Antifa is just an idea. A hundred percent. I mean, obviously, Antifa is just an idea coming with people who are armed to some of these rallies. And I think it's important to highlight the fact that we're now in this country at a movement that believes on the left. Any instance of police using force is inherently wrong. Any instance, including when people are coming at them with knives or guns with the intent of killing that officer. Uh, On my show, we say pretty clearly when any of these issues happen, the best way to not get shot by a cop is not to pull a weapon on them, not yeah, to advance right. on them and do them harm. And when you do that, you're opening yourself up to the risk of being shot and or killed, right? Injured or killed. Don't pull weapons on cops, period. And the video that's coming out of Philadelphia, like the video that's been coming out of so many other places in which police officers have used force, shows reasonable people would have done what the police officers did. Now, is that always the case? No, there's going to be clear cases in which police overuse their their force. And in cases like that, save the outrage for that to highlight those issues. Instead of using this outrage every single time any use of force is happening, I just think that that sends the wrong message. And by the way, it hurts your own cause. And the other thing, too, with respect to Philadelphia, here again, we have a George Soros backed uh, local district attorney, Larry Krasner. And in what kind of attitude it does uh, it generate in people that are inclined to violence? It's a small fraction of the population, no matter where you are, but that but it's an impactful small percentage. What kind of message does it send to people who are inclined to violence when you have public officials like Krasner uh, and others around the country, as you know, saying that the police are bad and, uh, oh, by the way, if you're a certain kind of predator in terms of your skin pigmentation, then we're not going to prosecute you because systemic racism. Oh, well, we have a case here in Seattle uh, in which a politician just put forward a uh, piece of legislation that essentially will provide a affirmative defense for any misdemeanor charge. So if you claim that you're dealing with an addiction, for example, regardless of the, you know, the quote unquote lower level crime that you are accused of committing, 
you have an affirmative uh, off. You can literally just get it tossed. They're literally trying to make it so that you can legally break the law all while you have the same exact voices when an officer will make an arrest claiming that the only reason they're doing this is because they're evil racist cops who want to go after people of color. And then you point out, well, what about all these white people who are getting arrested for things? Oh, we ignore that. We keep them in jail. We're talking about people who are disproportionately impacted by the police. But the argument falls apart the moment that you look at the crimes that are being committed. At some point, there has to be some acknowledgement that if we're going to have a police force, they have to make arrests of people who are breaking the law. And if you don't want them doing that, change the law. So they try to change the law, but it's going to end up being a, a total fiasco here in Seattle where you barely have any of the laws being enforced. We've seen an increase, a historic increase in homicides, domestic violence homicides, in arson. And of course, you've got the general homelessness crisis getting worse, again, because of forced depolicing. He is Jason Rance. He's the host of The Jason Rance Show on KTTH 770 AM, 94.5 FM in Seattle, Tacoma. Jason, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former uh, Trump FDA director, now uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. He uh, writes in The Wall Street Journal, Winter is coming, time for a mask mandate. Masks will help as a practical matter. It's easier to wear a mask in the winter than in the summer. A mandate can be expressly limited to the next two months. It's long been known that masks can reduce the spread of flu, and the same logic applies to coronavirus. Um, You know, I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, but it's long been known that masks can reduce the spread of flu. Well, we've looked at a lot of studies, including from the WHO, that uh, suggest uh, that that statement is incorrect. So as we continue to throw this hot potato around, I know it's a somewhat ancillary issue. At least it is for many of the scientists and medical professionals, but it's become the issue, even more so than a vaccine, because COVID-19 has become so politicized. So I I guess we need to start there with Dr. Roger Klein. He is a a doctor as well as a lawyer. Boy, talk about uh, right brain, left brain. He's also an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Roger Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. So um, so Dr. Scott Leap says that these uh, Danish scientists who've actually done a study on mask wearing can't get their study published for some reason. And the uh, previous research on mask wearing as it pertained to the prevention of influenza spread is uh, mixed at best. And so uh, I'm left baffled. We are right. And I don't know where Scott is getting his information, but there there are multiple meta-analyses on influenza for sure. And it's never been shown. That's why it it has mask wearing by the public. And again, these aren't even masks. CDC overtly and expressly and, and WHO recommended against against this practice. So so I think it's a sideshow, quite frankly. It's really a political discussion. It's not a medical or scientific one. Mm-hmm. Something else that um, hasn't been acknowledged is the ever subtle change in language over the last six months with respect to the virus. Uh, it has gone from flatten to slow 
to stop. Flatten and slow, I understand. Stop seems to be um, a position that uh, Joe Biden took uh, at the debate on Thursday night that uh, the media seems to be taking why, by just focusing on cases, regardless of the nature of those cases. Is stop something that's possible? No. Again, this, these discussions are political, and this is really all a lot of, unfortunately, none of this is scientifically based in my view, because we don't really have a lot of answers. The reason that it's called a pandemic is because the virus is spreads and we can't really do anything about it, or we can do little about it other than staying away from other people. If you look at Europe right now, it's, it's tearing through Europe. We have different performances in different countries and different states of the United States. They don't seem to have a strong relationship to the, to the practices that are held there. That's why, you know, if masks help somewhat or coverings help somewhat, and, and we don't know that for sure, whether they would affect the ultimate outcome, it seems un- unlikely. And we don't see associations that are strong, so their effects are mostly minimal. We have a contagious virus. It's more contagious probably than influenza. And it's really, really hard to stop this from spreading. And that's what we need to do. And I think we've said this all along is to focus on protecting vulnerable people to minimize the numbers of deaths and trying not to overrun the hospital system. And we've been very successful, I think, actually in both after the initial period and deaths are way down. But we've also not not experienced an overrunning of the healthcare system. And that's really what we can hope for as this virus runs its course. And just to take a step back about your profession does it um, rankle you at all? I read your sort of a top line bio at the outset. And I mean, you're as credentialed and as experienced as uh, just about anybody else discussing these topics or working on these topics around the country in combination with uh, infectious disease experts like Kaldorf at Harvard and Gupta at Oxford and Bhattacharya at Stanford and, and Henry Miller at Pacific Research Institute, who is the founding uh, director of the Office of Biotech within the FDA. And all of uh, you folks are uh, not part of the legitimate scientific community anymore, as I understand it, from the way this is reported by the press and talked about by certain politicians. Uh, that The sort of cognitive dissonance, the sort of textured explanations you're providing, we don't have any time for that, uh, Dr. Klein, and so you're part of the problem. Does that, does that bother you and your colleagues at all? I don't, can't speak for others. I don't really feel that. And I recognize it's hard to get on uh, on media and, and have a, a contrary point of view to what the media is representing, but they don't represent the, the mass of, of people who look at the issues. They represent some people. They're usually cherry picked. It's I, you know, I, it really, the whole thing hurts me because I don't feel that this is not how you handle science and medicine. You need to have robust debates, especially about in areas in which we don't really have answers. And those people who would try to control the behavior, for example, of others who, or who have a political agenda are, are really the ones who are harming uh, harming the, the situation because we really need to have robust and vibrant discussions about how to handle a complex problem that we haven't faced before and about which we have limited knowledge. You uh, mentioned in your piece um, confronting COVID over at the City Journal uh, this uh, phrase that uh, will uh, generate much opprobrium. And and look, I, I just had a, 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 a video call with a friend of mine's father who is on a ventilator, who is in dire straits because of COVID. So there's a complete recognition of how serious this is for some uh, on this show, and there always has been, as I know there is with you. Uh, But if you say what you said in this piece, which is 
let me quote you, it's widely understood that the epidemic will not end unless and until we achieved an undetermined threshold of population immunity, sometimes referred to as herd immunity, wherein the virus runs out of people to infect. Uh, you, you invoke the prospect of herd immunity, even combined with a vaccine, and you're somebody who is indifferent to human suffering. Yeah, so, so, so that, this is just a biological fact. I mean, I think, so, so again, this is what Scott, got, uh, Scott Atlas was criticized for, uh, a statement, you know, saying it's a strategy. It's not a strategy. It's a, it's a fact. It's something that has to happen that most people believe has to happen in order for the epidemic to go away. If you look at the letter that 100 Stanford faculty members wrote criticizing Scott Atlas, they make this identical point. And what they say is we believe the best way to achieve this is through a safe and effective uh, vaccine that's gone through the regulatory process. And I think so the vaccines can create this level of population immunity as can infections. I, you know, my, my concern all along has been that we've been in a race really between infections and, and vaccines. And I think you can't just shut your entire country down and try to lock people up to, 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 to slow the spread until, uh, in, until, the, until a, a vaccine may or may not appear. The administration has done a terrific job in every, in every possible way with respect to vaccine development. And I, you know, I'm very optimistic that we're going to have something. We don't know how well it work, will work. Look at the flu. I mean, the, the influenza vaccine is, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, I think, you know, I think we need to, to, to live with this thing and really do everything we can, and we can do this, to protect elderly people uh, and, and vulnerable people, particularly those in nursing homes where 40 to 50 percent of the deaths have, have, uh, have been traced to, because they, these are institutionalized settings, and so you have much greater control over the environment. And I think, I think that, that those resources are extremely well spent. They're, they're, they're not well spent trying to protect young people who, for whom this virus poses very little risk. He is Dr. Roger Klein. He is an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thank you for your insights as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show and um, moving from uh, COVID to uh, the science behind uh, combating the virus to COVID, the impact on K through 12 education in particular. Uh, have you been uh, paying attention to uh, what your child is uh, learning? I put that in quotation marks. If he or she is uh, enrolled in a school in one of these big urban school districts, like say for Chicago, I'm looking at a um, questionnaire, CPS, Chicago Public School Equity Framework, Liberatory Thinking Tool, CPS Equity Framework. And it asks for the students to fill out uh, this questionnaire uh, and uh, rate yourself. Are you ready to learn? One, two, learning, or three, are you delivering? On identity, I can communicate an understanding of my identities and intersectionality. Number two, I understand how my social identities affect how I do my work. Number three, I can name 
current racial inequities in my communities. Number four, I am able to recognize how I express internalized racial superiority and internalized racial inferiority. On all of those matters, am I ready to learn? Am I learning? Am I delivering? But no, this isn't indoctrination. Am I delivering? Mm -hmm. Janice Jackson, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, she is the uh, superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools. Uh, she um, retweeted an announcement from the city about the 2020 Virtual Girls Summit. And in her tweet, she wrote, Young Wimexen leaders, women spelled W-O-M-X-N, the X as in Xing out men, Young Women X, Wom XN leaders. Your voice matters. Join us for a free virtual summit. Mm -hmm. In the San Diego Unified School District, they're combating racism. As the uh, vice president of the school board said, if we're going to be an anti-racist school district, we have to confront practices like uh, grading. So the second biggest school district in the state of California is making some changes. Academic grades will now focus on mastery of the material, not a yearly average which board members say penalizes students who get a slow start. Teachers can no longer consider non-material factors when grading. Things like turning in work on time, classroom behavior, will now instead count towards a, a student's citizenship grade, not their academic grade. Well, that's great. For your academic grade, it doesn't matter if you uh, turn in uh, your work and it doesn't matter what you get on, on uh, the actual testing of the material. It's just uh, how much progress your teacher subjectively thinks you made, taking, of course, into account your race and other intersectional attributes. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be here. So uh, I know uh, this; uh, these examples from uh, San Diego School District, Chicago School District don't surprise you, but when it comes to critical race theory and uh, the sort of everything under the umbrella of identitarian indoctrination. Where do we stand? Um, we stand in a pretty uh, precarious place. We're not in a good place right now. It is uh, taking over quite thoroughly in our institutions. A lot of things that you just mentioned, people won't quite catch. Uh, for example, that at the very beginning of the first example, you mentioned that in Chicago that they're teaching liberation. Liberation is explicitly a concept from neo-Marxism, which is explicitly designed to tear apart Western societies, and that's what they're indoctrinating our kids in. And you you know, pointed at some big city schools, but it's pretty much in all of our schools now. Right. It, I mean, right. It sort of starts in academia, then it goes down, and then it goes out to the larger culture. And so this is, I mean, the, the, uh, the questionnaire that CPS students are being uh, required to fill out, they're probably being required to fill out at every Fortune 500 company, too. I would imagine so. Um, that's right. And, you know, you can see the various manipulations. You pointed out the use of the word woman instead of woman, which is a second stage change. So there's, there's all these weird manipulations that's it's being in, in, uh, in, incorporated into a ton of things. Um, there's a clear bent, if you take it the example of womanks, which is woman with an X in it. It was to X out the man, but it's further than that because they had a woman with a Y instead of the A to get rid of the man before, W-O-M-Y-N, and now they've changed the Y to an X to indicate that they've embraced queer theory in addition to uh, the, the feminism. So it, it's an advancing project that's getting pretty far along, and it is, it is rooted in our HR departments. It's rooted in our um, schools. 
been in our universities and our colleges of education where we teach our teachers for probably 40 years. Uh, we're, we're not in a good place. And uh, when we come back with James Lindsay, I want to ask about some of the steps that we can take to at least engage, if not, uh, uh, if not uh, force a retreat of uh, some of these, uh, the examples of these, this pernicious ideology. More with James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, author of How to Have Impossible Conversations, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Joe Biden uh, speaking to the press today, uh, offering a, a review of uh, uh, a meeting that he and his uh, running mate and her spouse had. 270. But my wife, Jill, as you know, and Doug Emhoff. Uh, Kamala's wife are there. Kamala will be back uh, later this week, I think on Friday. Kamala's wife, Doug. Well, you know, these are confusing times. And uh, it's just uh, a a week ago where uh, Joe Biden was suggesting to a woman who says she had two daughters, uh, one who is uh, a girl and the other who is an eight-year-old boy who identifies as a girl, that, hey, you know, that's great. Whatever. If your eight-year-old says, hey, mom, it's easier for me to go through life as a girl, then obviously Joe Biden is for it. So uh, it's tough to keep track of all these things. We're speaking with James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, author of How to Have Impossible Conversations, and uh, his recent piece for Racial Healing, Reject Critical Race Theory. Uh, James, I- explain to people how uh, this, uh, this, this gender identity and orientation identity folds in with race identity, because I think there's a lot of people say, oh, so the, they understand the grievance that uh, black Americans have. They're a little bit more confused as to how this all folds into eight year old boys wanting to be girls and uh, people who are questioning their sexual orientation and so on and so forth. How does that have what does that have to do with uh, black Americans and their grievances of pa- about past mistreatment? Well, it's basically the same line of thought applied in a different domain, which is a little bit complicated to understand, but it's still a line of thought of grievances. In this case, the grievances are sex, gender, and sexual minorities, and they, of course, have a history of grievances as well, history of discrimination in many cases as well. So the critical race theory is an idea that people are less familiar with a related idea. In fact, it has similar roots called queer theory, and queer theory has this idea that anything that is normal, like uh, being men or being women, or there being two sexes, or that men are masculine, usually, and that women are feminine, usually, or that people tend on it much more often than not to be straight, or that people tend to identify as the gender that they are, all of those things that are normal are oppressive. Those are actually the place, just like where racism is the place that racial minorities have been discriminated against, these sex, gender, and sexual minorities have been discriminated against by having been expected to be normal in society by very rigid definitions of normal. And so they're trying to overturn that as well. They're trying to flip that crypt over as well. And why should we care if somebody wants to identify as a boy who's a girl? You know, Rachel Dolezal, even somebody who's white wants to identify as black. Why should we care about uh, what people choose to identify as? Frankly, if they're adults, I don't think that we should. But if they're children, they are minors and their brains are not fully developed and they're not competent to make those kinds of decisions about their lives. When, when you talk about children deciding to change sex or attempt to change sex, 
the hormone treatments, the surgeries, the things that they have to go through in order to do that are absolutely carrying the possibility of devastating their lives in the future. They could sterilize them. It could damage their organs. You have young women having their breasts cut off so that they can become boys. They're not going to grow back. 14-year-old girls looking for double mastectomy just because they wish to be a boy. So these are irreversible changes that have massive consequences for health. It's also very confusing. It's hard enough to navigate adolescence and even late childhood with, you know, understanding who you are as a emerging uh, adult human being in terms of sex and, and, and sexuality. And to add just layers upon layers of pretense and confusion is not helping people, especially when it's being done in support of an ideology that's trying to destabilize normality so that it can um, effectively tear apart some of the, the most fundamental uh, core objects of society, like the family. And it seems to me that the issue with adults uh, who are well within their rights to make their own choices about life, so long as they don't impinge upon another's right to do the same. It seems like the problem here is not the choice, but the defer- the deference they expect from society such that we reorder society to not only accommodate them, but also to give them a standing that they demand based on their identity. That's right. You often hear them put that in terms of saying that it's just basic respect, treating people with respect, but they never go the step further and remind people because they don't believe it, that respect is a two-way street. So if somebody wants to identify as the opposite sex and they want to change their, their name and they want to change their pronouns, I agree that it is respectful to try to honor that. It is not, however, a matter of respect to continue doing that when they start to bully or demand or treat people badly as a result of it. Uh, respect goes two ways. You don't just get to continue to demand respect forever. Simultaneously, there are real issues. There are real issues around this. Simply deciding to, de- to identify as a woman if you are a man, and then therefore that you now have access to uh, sex-segregated spaces like bathrooms and other private rooms where uh, women could be put at risk, or where you have instances where men decide to identify as women and participate in women's sports, where they have a gigantic competitive advantage. These are real issues that have to be treated um, in a way that, that recognizes that somebody's self-identity isn't the end of the story. There's, there are other people, like you said, it starts to infringe on other people's rights and well-being at some point, and those other people do have a stake. And if you're just going to bully people around that, then you're, then you're not playing by fair rules. You're, you're in fact, uh, leaving the, the usual uh, rules of engagement of our society, and so- they demand special treatment. So, so what uh, can we do? Uh, it's sort of in the short term. What is accessible to to do to try to redraw some of the lines that have been erased, or is it possible? I think that the the lines are going to be redrawn and are being redrawn. I would urge people not to dive too deeply into a reaction to say, you know, that men have to be like this very strict, narrow thing. Women have to be this very strict, narrow thing. Uh, but at the same time, we do have to be willing to be unafraid to speak the truth and to be able to express it in consistent principles. For example, if I choose not to, if I, if I decide at some point that I no longer want to respect somebody's pronouns, even if it's just in a particular conversation, I should have the principle that I will respect you as long as you respect me. And since you've now disrespected me, I'll return to respect when you do. And so by being able to put it in in terms that are are coming from consistent and fair principles, you can start to push back. You also probably should start looking at supporting um, 
politicians and intellectuals and maybe uh, activists or whatever that are trying to push back at this because they are in the minority and they're rather embattled. Um, President Trump passed a uh, issued an executive order combating sex and, and race stereotyping and scapegoating, or as he put it in his, his announcement about it, critical race theory. That should be supported. He is James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, picking up on our discussion of critical race theory and identitarian politics from uh, with James Lindsay. Chelsea Handler, yeah, yeah, she's still alive. She uh, took Twitter to say this to uh, those who would be influenced by 50 Cent saying he's voting for Trump because 50 Cent doesn't want to be 20 Cent. This is Chelsea Handler, cultural maven. And I had to remind him that he was a black person, so he can't vote for Donald Trump and that he shouldn't be influencing an entire swath of people who may listen to him because he's worried about his own personal pocketbook. Boy, it's it's two offenses, right? One, being worried about your own pocketbook. How dare you? Number two, you're black, so you can't vote for Trump. We've uh, gone from uh, Joe Biden telling Charlemagne the God that uh, you ain't black if you don't know you're supposed to vote for Biden to now Chelsea Handler. (laughs) You can't like you're not allowed to. So there you go, black Americans. You've heard from your uh, woke white leftist female minder, Chelsea Handler. Couldn't get any more ghastly. Yeah, it's funny as much as. The D.C. press corps is trying to convince the populace that this is so much different than 2020, that so much has changed. Uh, I say again, the only thing that's changed is Trump has amassed a record and a record inconsistent with the predictions they made about what his record would be and fairly consistent, largely consistent, really, with the record he said he would amass if elected. And uh, so Christopher Bedford writing in The Federalist, all signs point to one thing. We're reliving the 2016 election. Uh huh. I mean, there are some differences, of course, but there's more probably similarities than there are differences. Now, obviously, the big difference could be that uh, Trump doesn't win re-election. Not winning would be a big difference. Seismic, actually. But in terms of the run up, this doesn't feel at all like 2016 to you with the obsession on polling, uh, the unrelenting effort by the press corps to basically create a coronation rather than cover an election. As uh, Bedford writes, um, somehow four short years after the Democrat Party and their media allies publicly went through what recovering alcoholics call a moment of clarity, they relapsed. They're doing it all over again, bit for bit, play by play. They even brought back Black Lives Matter, that national organizer of violent racial hatred that last led to the 2016 murder of five Dallas policemen. The whole gang is back. The candidate is so isolated from Americans that his own campaign staff must look away while drinking water and he dare not even shake hands with his running mate. I mean, that's a little bit different than Hillary Clinton. But the idea that that uh, both candidates were sort of salted away, insulated from press scrutiny and uh, questions. I mean, remember Hillary Clinton, that uh, the famous image of Hillary Clinton staffers literally lassoing reporters, keeping them like with string around a group of reporters and, and leading them down the street so as to corral them and keep them away from from Hillary around, you know, 
get on little doggies. Although behind a major polling, Trump is packing stadiums. Once again, Saturday Night Live skits fail to trigger as much as a chuckle. This election day could go either way. Nothing is for certain. Nothing except for one thing. We, I think he means them, haven't learned a thing. Well, we'll see. We'll see. The, the parallels are eerie. And hopefully the uh, that will uh, extend into the outcome. This is Dan Proud. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You'll also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The repeated pandemic health scares caused by uh, an avian H5N1 in 2006 and a new H1N1 human influenza virus are part of the culture of fear. Worst case thinking replaced balanced risk assessment. Worst case thinking is motivated by the belief that the danger we face is so overwhelmingly catastrophic that we must act immediately. Rather than wait for information, we need a preemptive strike. But if resources buy lives, wasting resources waste lives. The precautionary stocking of large useless antivirals and the irrational vaccination policies against the unusually benign H1N1 2009 virus wasted many billions of euros and eroded the trust of the public and health officials. The pandemic policy was never informed by evidence, but by fear of worst case scenarios. Wasted many billions of euros, eroded the trust of the public and health officials, the pandemic policy was never informed by evidence, but by fear of worst case scenarios. That assessment of the response to the pandemics of 06 and 09 was issued in 2011 by the World Health Organization. Interestingly, in 2020, right now, as we've talked about in this show, we have the special envoy for COVID-19 from the World Health Organization decrying lockdown policies. And what do we see? Lockdowns in Italy, lockdowns in Ireland. Huh. But uh, we're told that there's a scientific consensus and that to voice any opposition to the lockdown policies is to be anti-science. Interesting. The World Health Organization that was just defended so vociferously when it came under assault by President Trump, that same World Health Organization, then and now to be skeptical based on a lack of evidence of these uh, alleged, the way they're reported, panaceas like mask wearing is to be anti-science. William Briggs is the statistician to the stars, writer, philosopher, itinerant scientist. His blog, wmbriggs.com. He also is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. William Briggs, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, surprised to hear uh, or be reminded of that assessment by the World Health Organization from the global response in 06 and 09? Nope, not at all. And in fact, they continued that sort of attitude through 2019. They issued a report, which they forgot about in 2020. But in 2019, they said, don't do lockdowns for the general public. Social distancing uh, probably won't work, they said, and and it's not recommended. Whatever you do, don't kick people out of work. They definitely said, don't kick people out of work. Yet somehow in 2020, Tedros, that guy in charge of them, forgot all about this stuff. This is a big report they wrote. The one that you talked about, the one in 2019, 
forgot all about it, and then recommended lockdowns. And a lot of countries followed them. Many countries are jumping back into them right now, even though they must have learned from the first time they went into these lockdowns, they gained nothing and lost a lot. But they haven't been able to learn from this. Uh, What has happened to the flu Um, in Australia? Just 14 positive flu cases were recorded in April compared with 367 during the same month in 2019. That's a 96% job. By uh, June, usually the peak of its flu season, there were none. Zero cases of the flu in Australia. In fact, Australia has not reported a positive case to the WHO since July. In Chile, just 12 cases of the flu were detected between April and October. There were 7,000 during the same period in 2019. In the U.K., since COVID began spreading in March, just 767 cases have been reported to the WHO compared with 7,000 from March to October last year. What happened to the flu? Oh, it's still there. The flu didn't disappear, but what happened is the testing for it has disappeared because there has been a mad, enormous, insane, preposterous increase in testing for the coronavirus. You're quite right. I have on my blog today the WHO's latest data showing the flu tracking. They have a global tracking network, absolutely dead flat, no flu for months. That's impossible. So what's happening instead is everybody's rushing to get these uh, coronavirus tests, and any possible indication, whether it's a real positive or an indication of a past disease or perhaps a different coronavirus or something like this, they're labeling as a coronavirus infection, which they're falsely calling cases, and nobody's checking for the flu. Because, again, just today I heard on the news, don't go to the hospital, they said in Pennsylvania, because we're anticipating a second wave of people flooding into the system from this surge. But this surge is entirely an artifact of the enormous number of testing we're doing. So flu can't disappear. It's not going anywhere. It's just not being tested for. So these tracking networks aren't picking them up. And the people who have this aren't going to the hospital to seek treatment. People are still scared to go to the hospital. So we are seeing some pushback against uh, renewed COVID lockdown policies, indicating some people have uh, had enough. Uh, Some have had enough for a long time. Others are coming to that viewpoint uh, and to, to their breaking point. That's right. In Italy, there was recent, uh, in Ireland, and so forth. Uh, we need something of the same sort here, a, a kind of uh, nonviolent civil disobedience to some of these yes. draconian rules that we have. Don't forget, everybody should listen. Uh, eight states in the, in the United States never locked down, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, others. And they did among the best as far as death rates go. No mask mandates and things like this. Florida opened up. Everybody predicted the absolute worst was going to happen for them. It was going to be a slaughterhouse. Turned out to be fine. Sweden did fine. Japan, Japan never had a lockdown. They have the absolute lowest death rate among all these large countries, much lower than Sweden's. They're not testing like crazy. We're testing healthy people. We're telling people, my God, you might have this disease. Well, how deadly can this disease be if you don't even know you have it and you have to go and get tested? The, the, the population fatality rates for people who are under 60, 65, something like this, are very low. You have a much higher chance of dying for something else besides the coronavirus. This is the CDC's latest numbers. What these policies are, they're not based on science. They're not based on any evidence that we have. They're just based on these gut reactions. And and there's a lot of people out there trying to seek the limelight uh, uh, for whatever reasons that they want to get involved in this and be put into power to make these decisions over people's lives. 
And we've got to be wary of this. Every, you, you've heard the saying, you know, when you hear a doctor, uh, you, get, you get some kind of diagnosis that uh, is unfavorable to you. You should get a second opinion. Mm-hmm. We should listen to other scientists, too, besides just the, the ones that are in, in government, yes. because they're not the only ones out there. There's a lot of us out there who are making the point that it's not that bad. There was a, uh, a moment in uh, Thursday night's final presidential debate where uh, Kristen Welker, the moderator, uh, invoked Tony Fauci as the best-known infectious yeah. disease expert in America. And the point is, uh, being the best-known is not the same thing as being the best. And I'm not saying that Tony Fauci doesn't know uh, his stuff with respect to infectious disease, but there's a lot of other people that are just as credentialed, just as knowledgeable, and who have different opinions. And I thought science was about skepticism, and you have to prove. You have to prove, not just declare and uh, we seem to have lost that. Fauci has followed the, the winds. He, at the very beginning, when everybody was, said it wasn't a big deal, he said it wasn't a big deal. And then when they said it's a big deal, he said it's a big deal. And then he said uh, no masks at first. Now he's saying we've got to have a mask mandate through 2022. And it, it, he said, this is the uh, guy who says we're never going to be able to shake hands Again, yeah. not just now, but again forever. This is nuts. This is not. Uh, this is not immunology. This is just nonsense. <laughs> the retail giant Target closing their doors to shoppers on Thanksgiving Day and Black Friday is in question. If you were uh, asked to advise uh, and counsel Target, would you say that they should open their stores? Would should big uh, box stores, retailers, should they be open, or should they, you know, out of an abundance of caution, stay closed? Certainly they should be open. If you are worried for yourself, if you yourself have these various comorbidities, particularly obesity, diabetes, the, the big ones that everybody knows about, and you are elderly, why, why would you want to mix in these populations that carry the potential for risk? You also have the potential to catch flu. You have the potential to catch other diseases. Of course, you want to take care of yourself. But for everybody else, it's not doing any good. It's just not doing any good. For the most people who get this thing, it's minor. A lot of people don't even know they had it. They turn out to be testing real positives, and they oh, they remember they had a scratchy throat a day, you know, two or three weeks back or something like this. It's just this is a, a very selective killer of a of a disease, and also not that unusual. We get these things every 10 to 20 years. You started off by mentioning the ones back in 2006, 2009. We get these things all the time. We can't be panicking like this every time there's a new outbreak. We'll just never, ever be able to return to normal. He is William Briggs, the statistician to the stars, writer, philosopher, itinerant scientist. His blog, wmbriggs.com. He's also the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. William Briggs, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Ooh, I'm a rebel just for kicks Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome uh, welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, we move from uh, the statistician to the star, William Briggs, to uh, these interesting stats from our friend Mark Perry, University of Michigan economics professor and... Uh, Carpe Diem blogger of the American Enterprise Institute. I, I love these annual compendiums that Mark puts together. Uh, one of my favorites, Occupational Equality Day. 
equal, I think it calls it Equal Occupational Fatality Day. And he just goes through sort of the, the male versus female stuff. And in, in this identitarian era, it's uh, all the more germane. The top 10 most dangerous occupations and the percentage of those occupations that male workers comprise. So the top 10 fishing fatality rate per 100,000 workers is 77. Aircraft pilots, it's 58, 59 per 100,000 workers. So fishing, you know, get the sense of it. Fishing, aircraft pilots, roofers, refuse and recycling collectors, truck drivers, farmers, ranchers, ag workers, iron and steel workers, construction trades, landscaping services, electric power line workers. When you add it all up, the top 10 professions, 92.5% male. And so like as uh, last year, last year in terms of calculating 2018, based on the BLS data, Bureau of Labor Statistics data for 2018, this was posted end of last year. We'll have to wait for end of this year for 2019. But based on BLS data for 2018, the next equal occupational fatality day will occur nearly 10 years from the first of this year on August 15th, 2028. (laughs) <laughs> the inequity of dying on the job. And so, and by the way, interesting to note, right, police officers not in the top 10. Just interesting to note. And just, you know, it's it's silliness, but it does highlight the point, which is the silliness of just counting male and female. The silliness of not recognizing men, men and women are different. There's another one he does that's just out for this year. For every 100 women, there are this many boys or men. And it's really interesting because it tells you something about um, where boys and men are falling behind or where they're overrepresented in destructive behaviors and uh, gives perhaps some commentary on why part at least of the social fabric is tearing and also may cause you to wonder why there's so much emphasis on things like girls' academic performance to the exclusion of boys' academic performance when you compare the two. Again, generally speaking, But if you want to play this game of male versus female, which I don't want to play, then you look at these numbers and you say, well, it seems to me that uh, by playing this game in a particular direction, we're hurting boys and men. And we're, I wouldn't say to the benefit necessarily of girls and women, but we're hurting boys and men. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? If you're a woman, do you want your son hurt? Do you want your husband hurt? Do you want your father hurt? Obviously not. So, for example... For every 100 girls or women who take high school AP or honors courses in art and music, 54 men. Who earn an associate's degree, 64 men. Who take uh, high school AP or honors courses in foreign and classical languages, 64%. Uh, 64, excuse me, men. For every 100 girls, 64 men. Who take high school AP honors courses in English, language arts, 64 men for every 100 women. Who earn a master's degree. We've talked about this. We talked about this most recently that the, the great preponderance, the great, excuse me, not preponderance, the great majority of postgraduate degrees, master's degrees and PhDs are earned by women excepting in computer science and math who are enrolled in colleges. For every 100 women enrolled in a U.S. college, only 71 men are. I mean, if the numbers were reversed, the question, of course, how would this be treated? It, would it be treated like as a national crisis the way that Uh, The underrepresentation of women in STEM courses as a percentage of their population is treated as a national crisis. Who earn a bachelor's degree? 100 women. For every 100 women who earn a bachelor's degree, 74 men. Enrolled in graduate schools. For every 100 women, 75 men. Who are in the top 10% of their high school class? For every 100 women, 79 79 men. Go down a little bit. Who earn a doctor's degree? Doctoral degree. For every 100 women, 85 men, to my earlier point. How about this now on the other side? Flip it 
and talk about um, the um, I mean, this sort of speaks to perhaps falling behind indirectly. This speaks to falling behind directly for every hundred women whose entry into kindergarten is delayed. One hundred and thirty nine men for every hundred women in public schools classified as having mental retardation. One hundred and forty men who repeat kindergarten for every hundred women, one hundred and forty five men or you know, girls and boys for every hundred girls or boys, uh, girls, excuse me, for every hundred girls aged three to 17 diagnosed with communication disorders, 168 men who abuse drugs and alcohol for every hundred women, 180 men specified or uh, classified as having a specific learning disability for every hundred women, 207 men, two times who are homeless and unsheltered for every hundred women, 232 men. Have we talked about uh, the crisis in men being homeless? When we talk about the homeless, we don't really focus on the gender disparity, do we? For every 100, 20, 25 to 34 year olds who die, for every 100, 25 to 34 year old women who die, 233 men. Suspended from school for every 100 women, 240 men. For every 15 to 24 year old woman who dies, 262 men. For every 100, 15 to 24 old women who die, 262 men. Expelled from public schools, almost three to one. For every 100 women, 291 men. Commit suicide, age 15 to 19. For every 100 women, 293 men. Who receive services in public schools for autism. For every 100 women, 300 men. Who die by opioid overdose. For every 100 women, 318 men. Age 20 to 29 who commit suicide. 100 women, 441 men incarcerated for every hundred women, 614 men, six to one who die of homicide aged 20 to 29 for every hundred women, 648 men, six and a half to one who die on the job. As we were just discussing more 11 to one for every hundred women, 1,171 men incarcerated in state and federal prisons for every hundred women, 1,314 men, 13 to one. So it's just, this is this is not getting into um, arguing for or against particular outcomes in particular cases. It's more just pointing out that the emphasis on uh, the misogynistic societies that we supposedly live in. So this will at least will deal with one of the isms, sexism. Is it really prevalent, including the uh, specious? arguments about women earning 72 percent of the dollar. We know those disappear when controlling for things like education, continuity in the workplace and so forth. Um, But does this speak to a endemically sexist society, America? Is that right? It does speak to women and men being different, which is something that is uh, attempted to be tamped down. But all of the energy when it comes to public policy is always about how women are being uh, discriminated against, not about how men are. Right. I mean, other than Mark Perry's efforts to uh, provide to to force colleges to provide some even handedness, even handedness with respect to Title IX violations. Who else is doing that? This is not like a man rights movement. It's not any of that. It's not uh, trying to redistribute away from women their representation in some of the positives or their representation, the relatively uh, 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 smaller representation in some of the negatives. It's just trying to provide some context here 
so you can recognize an identitarian demagogue when you hear one, whether they're focused on race or gender. This is Dan Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And now we uh, turn our attention to culture. And um, one of my favorite uh, thinkers on all things cultural related is Anthony Esselin. And in the latest piece that he has written for uh, Public Discourse, uh, he invokes uh, one of my favorite poets, actually, which is, uh, who is, I should say, Whittier, um, from uh, Maud Mahler. You might remember Whittier for all sad words of tongue or pen. The saddest are these, it might have been, one of his more notable flourishes. But uh, Esselin, in his piece, From Many Nothing, a bit of a spin on what I, the concept of America he writes, we thought for a long time that a common culture and history could serve us in place of a common faith. That was the bland liberal hope, dashed, the culture withers, and the history is traduced and loathed. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts and the author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, and Sex in the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Tony, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, it's good to be back here. So, uh, from many nothing instead of from many one, what happened? Yeah. Well, uh, it's the sort of thing that nobody would have expected, or perhaps nobody did expect, but they should have. Um, th- we've we've been so fortunate in the United States, even with our Civil War, uh, and most countries would have been uh, simply kaput after such such a thing but even with our civil war we we reunited and people from both the south and the north um had to forgive one another uh, live with one another again regard each other as brothers um and that could only happen uh that could only happen because they shared and people don't want to talk about this openly but they shared a common christian faith abraham lincoln himself noted it when he said that you know, they, they pray to the same God, they read the same scriptures. Um, it, it was puzzlement to him that uh, the country could have been, um, even at that, could have been convulsed in war. Uh, but nevertheless, they did um, worship the same God, they did read the same scriptures, and, um, and they had the same history that uh, they treasured, and often for many of the same reasons. Um, and I understand that it, it took a long time for people in certain parts of the South uh, to get over the feeling of having been uh, raped, having been, uh, uh, you know, devastated. But um, still they did. Um, not perfectly. Uh, and we were never a perfect nation. There's no such thing as a perfect nation. But in general, Americans loved their country. And I think most of that is gone now. Um, we don't, we don't, we don't, look fondly upon our history we're taught to hate it and we don't uh, we don't share same faith uh, that that too has that's worn thin in us and the and the we just to to to, to clarify the we is you know half the country 
and uh, and and included in that half are happen to be the uh, the the vanguard class, uh, 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 the 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 cultural nomenclatura uh, that uh, in charge of all of our institutions. Yeah, yeah, uh, I I have a lot of hard things to say about the. Uh, place where I was an undergraduate, Princeton, from 1977 and 1981, class of 1981. Um, but I did get an excellent education there. And I recall that even in those times, and those pretty tumultuous times, right? Uh, we had the Iran hostage crisis, mm-hmm. the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, uh, horrible economy, and so on. But um, the, you, you took for granted that just about everybody except for a couple of people on the fringe loved this country, and the courses were not politicized. I had only one course in which contemporary politics played any part at all, and it was a course in contemporary politics, <laughs> yes. right? So appropriate, right, yeah. And, and at that, the, the professor was remarkably even-handed. We never quite knew whether he was a man of the left or of the right. Um, and uh, uh, that's, that's, that's gone now. It's gone now. Every, everybody is in um, uh, a, a political, uh, a political um, overdrive. Everybody is overheated because there's not enough real life to grab hold of anymore. There's not, there's not a real culture. There's not a shared faith. Um, there's, there are no shared objects of veneration from your own secular history. Uh, so what do you, what are you left with? Um, uh, well, well, I want to pick up on this. There's no real culture, that statement, and have you elaborate on that. Also, this idea that you uh, explore in your piece that uh, unity is uh, not the norm. Unity actually needs stewardship. Uh, more with Anthony Esselin, professor, writer-in-residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, author of The Hundredfold Songs for the Lord and Sex in the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. And Anthony, before the uh, break, you said uh, in, in talking about your piece and where we're at, where we don't have a shared sense of love of country and recognition of American history. You said we don't have any real culture uh, today. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I try to take my cue from Pope Benedict's teacher, Romano Guardini, uh, who noted this already, already happening just a few years after the war when he wrote The End of the Modern World, that the uh, modern world, what, what, what comes to us in the wake of the end of the modern world is something new in human history, a cultureless culture. And uh, that bears some analysis, right? That warrants some analysis. Um, we have mass entertainment and mass schooling, mass polling, mass politics, and so on. Um, the culture, the real thing, that is what people, uh, what people cherish, what they'll defend with their lives, what they all know and love, the songs that are passed from one generation to the next, um, the great paintings, even if you see them only in picture, that people treasure, the, uh, the memories that go from 
one generation to the next also. And, and, and that shared faith, because as uh, the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper said, um, in leisure, the basis of culture, if you don't ha- have that shared faith, you're not going to have a culture. Um, it, it, it's, going, it's going to wither away, um, because people are united not by their appetites. They're not united from below. They're really only united from above by what captures their, their imagination, their love, um, what they want to give themselves to. And lacking that, well, the, the, the rest of it, the poetry, the art, the shared history and all that, the rest of it c- can't sustain itself, hasn't sustained itself. And now, far from not being, not being rich enough, not having enough calories and nutrition, far from that, now it's laced with poison. Um, uh, it, it's all, and not just that, that we don't that we don't cherish the old uh, American institutions or read the old American authors. We hate them. Um, they're uh, what's left. We sometimes watch baseball and can talk a little bit of football. Is that it? That that doesn't make a country. And and when you We're talk seeing that in our midst. And when you talk about uh, you know actual culture as opposed to this culturalist culture that you're describing. Actual culture is that the the steward of real unity. In other words, you you mention in your piece that uh, unity is not the norm; it requires effort. That's unity is abnormal, and to have sort of a national unity, at least in terms of the starting position, uh, thinking about the country, you need the kind of culture you're describing versus the culturalist culture we have. Yeah, I mean we're 330 million people. Um, how are you ever? How are you ever going to get them to have hearts that beat together unless, unless they share something approaching a common faith? It's not possible. Soviet Union tried a great substitute trying to drill into its people uh, a, a quasi-religious devotion to the dictatorship of the proletariat and all that. It proved to be ultimately in vain, right? Uh, that 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 country was rife with antagonisms and suspicions. Um, it, it they, they did their best uh, to, to unite people, and they were never united. The Soviets, so to speak, were never Soviet. They were never. They, well, they were never one. Well, they, they, um, they, they, we used to be, but we're not anymore. Well, and 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 is is that uh, um, the the failure of trying to unify around a man-made institution like government and. And, yeah. and and what keeps uh, what keeps the those in power in power, uh, you see uh, you see something um, again approximating far approximation. We're we're not close to this, but you're seeing it playing out in the times of COVID, where we've uh, encouraged our government has encouraged a snitch culture that was particular to the Eastern Bloc. Our government encourages people to behave differently, uh, live different lives in in public than they do in private. I mean, those are all features of totalitarian uh, societies. Yeah, imagine. I mean, it's like hell's own parody of, uh, of a church, right? Instead of, instead of looking out for your brother and correcting him in charity if he goes wrong because you love him and you want, you want when he dies that he will not be lost, right? Um, you have people sneaking about and people are always prone to do this. Wherever you find people, you're going to have you're going to have them doing these things. But when it becomes the rule, maybe you have them sneaking about, um, trying to find fault. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
And it's not just uh, checking to see if somebody's wearing a mask. You, you, it's the same sort of phenomenon when you go onto a social media to check up on a person, to find out what that person has posted and then expose him to the world, right? I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> this, this is hell's own version of fraternal correction. This is, this is, uh, this is I suppose, what the most ill-behaved of the demons would do if they weren't scared to death of Satan. Uh, There's a line in uh, Stephen King's novella, 1922, uh, in which he writes, in ev- inside every man is, is another man, conniving man. And um, it seems like we're uh, giving license to conniving man in these times. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, the, the strange thing is, just as... It, just as the worst vices are greatest virtues curdled, right? Um, so it is that the, our, our natural social instincts, and the more social you are, the more prone you are to this. Uh, I think one sex is more prone to it than another, but both sexes are prone to vices in, in different ways. But the more social you are by nature, the more also you will be likely to be the snitch, mm-hmm. the spy, um, the uh, uh, the person who would make sure that nobody dares to utter a word against the regnant pieties, um, and to make sure that the person who dares to do that will be punished. I, we see this in our colleges. When we come back with Anthony Esselin, I want to pick up on... Uh, when we come back with Anthony Esselin, I want to share something that... Uh, Francis Cardinal George shared before his passing as to the church and ask uh, Tony if it, he thinks it applies to culture in the West. We'll uh, start there when we return. Later. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with writer in residence at Magdalen College of Liberal Arts, Anthony Eslin, talking about uh, culture, our culturalist culture. He would describe it. He did describe it. And um, I wanted to... um, Get your reaction to something that uh, Francis Cardinal George said before his passing. I will die in my bed. My predecessor will die in prison. His predecessor will die in the public square. And his predecessor will pick up the shards of the church and rebuild. As sort of an inevitability about what he saw happening to culture in the West in general. And, And I wonder if you agree that this is going to have to crash and burn and then be picked up and rebuilt from the ground up? Or is there a way to pull out of the path we're on? I think it has already crashed and burned. I deny vociferously the charge that I'm uh, chicken little saying the sky is going to fall. I don't say that at all. The sky has fallen. We should come up with an index of social dissolution, right? How many marriages end in divorce? About two in five. That's a modest ex- estimate. That's rather on the low end. How many children in the country are born out of wedlock? About two in five. How many sexual relationships of longer than two years duration break up? That might be a, a more significant statistic than the divorce statistic. And that, I'm sure, is probably well over half. 
you've, you've got young people now. I saw a poll yesterday that was absolutely skin crawling that 30% of women under the age of 30 consider themselves in some fashion to be LGBTQ, etc. That bespeaks a thorough dispiritedness and disgust with the natural order of things. I had written in a book published about 10 years ago now called Defending Marriage. I had written that one of the things that recognition of homosexual coupling would do would be to drive a wedge deeper between the sexes, that we're already in a bad state and not getting along. And I was laughed at for that. Most of all the arguments, that was the one that seemed to be furthest out there. Well, even I, in my sourest moments, would not have predicted this. And yet it has come to pass. So we were already crashed. So then so then, what does the rebuild look like? Or is, is, a, is a rebuild possible? Well, it is necessary, and human beings do what is necessary. We're doing some of it at my college, Magdalene College, small and utterly faithful Catholic school, doing what we can to reintroduce into the world by introducing it to our students. Their great heritage of Western thought and art and accomplishments. It's got to be done. I said some years ago that in one way it's disheartening because there's so much that's been destroyed. But in another way, it's encouraging because wherever you turn, there's something to do. You can't do everything, but you can do something. Um, it's, a, it's a city. It's been reduced to rubble. The sewers are backing up. The kids aren't getting fed. Feral dogs and wolves are in the streets. Um, what do you do? Well, you do the thing that's closest to hand for you. You pick up a shovel and you start cleaning up. No is, alternative. He is Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts. He was just referencing author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord. And Sex in the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Anthony Esselin, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is The Dan Prof Show.